so about two months ago, uh, Pastor Zach, he, he popped into my office and he let me know that I should plan on preaching today. And up until this past week, I kind of just assumed it would be because he would be gone the last several days. And he, he just said it. Uh, and if you guys didn't know, he and Sarah and Parker and a, a good handful of young adults, they were at a cross conference this past week. And he said it well, what it's all about. It's about encouraging young people for missions. And, and he mentioned it, but I want to mention it again, just a shameless plug here. In the past, cross-conference was only held every four years, but just this past week, they announced that they're going to hold it every year now. And so if you're a young adult in this room, I want you to consider joining us next year. And if you know a young adult in this room, I would ask you to consider putting a bug in that young adult's ear to maybe join us next year. I was able to go to cross-conference several years ago with Zach, and I had an absolute blast uh, you have speakers like John Piper. You have speakers like David Platt, Rosaria Butterfield, and the list goes on. It's such a phenomenal conference encouraging young people toward missions. But anyways, so, so here I was. I was thinking that, that Pastor Zach wanted me to preach today because he would be at, at a cross conference. But as I was thinking about it this past week, I started to get this sense that he really wanted me to preach because he didn't want the pressure of giving the first sermon of 2024. So here I am doing that, and we'll see if, we'll see if I can handle that pressure. But as he said, we'll be in Psalm 3 this morning, if everyone can turn there with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have hosts coming down the aisles. Just throw up your hand if you forgot it at home. If you don't have a Bible, uh, uh, throw up your hand, take one. And if you don't have a Bible, take that home. That's a gift to you. Please keep that. So as you turn to Psalm 3, I want everyone, I want everyone to, to cast their minds back in time to when you were in school. Uh, for some, that might be just a few years. For some, that might be a few decades. But when I was a, a junior in college, I had to take an introductory psychology course called Psychology of Relationships. And, and many of you might have had to take a similar kind of introductory psychology course, and even if you didn't, you might be familiar with the uh, concept I'm about to mention here. One of the things that I, I learned in that college course was something called attachment styles. Attachment styles refer to the kind of emotional connection or bond that we exhibit in our relationships, and, and the specific kind of attachment style that we demonstrate is, is typically formed through past relationship experience. And our style really shines brightly when we experience difficult times, when we are experiencing uncertainty, when we feel conflicted. Don't worry, I'm not going to give a lengthy speech on attachment styles. That's not why we're here. But I do think there's a few interesting points that are interesting for us. In general, there are four kinds of attachment styles. And you'll see them here up on the screen in just a second. First, we have a secure attachment. A secure attachment is characterized by full trust toward the other in the relationship. An anxious attachment is characterized by just what it sounds like, anxiety. You're never quite sure of the strength of the relationship and of the trustworthiness of the other person, and that makes you anxious. We also have an avoidant attachment, which is characterized by indifference. Honestly, you could give or take the relationship 
and you've put it to the back of your mind anyways. Lastly, we have disorganized or sometimes called fearful attachment style. And this attachment style is characterized by massive mood swings. So one second you feel confident in the relationship and at the smallest change you can swing all the way to complete insecurity, complete unsureness. And you might be wondering why in the world I'm talking about attachment styles, but believe it or not, I do have a reason. When I read Psalm 3, I feel like it gives us a wonderful picture of our author's secure attachment to the Lord despite difficulty and uncertainty. A secure attachment that we'll see was the result of experience and faith. To be fair, the uh, psychology of attachment doesn't really transfer one-to-one from human relationships to our relationship with the Lord, but there's enough similarity to make us think. Something to keep in mind this morning as we go through the text is what kind of attachment style you exhibit to the Lord, especially in difficulty. Is it secure, characterized by trust? Is it anxious, characterized by uneasiness? Is it avoidant, characterized by indifference? Or is it fearful, characterized by every whim of your emotion? So let's read Psalm 3 together. Uh, Please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. But here it is. We'll start in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to, to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You have a seat. So before anything else, what I feel like we see here in this text is that God's overwhelming faithfulness cultivates our overcoming faith. God's overwhelming faithfulness cultivates our overcoming faith. And and undergirding this main idea, I think what we see is, is a template for how we can respond to difficulty just like our author did. How we can press further into a secure attachment to the Lord. And I want to go through the text this morning as if if each section of the passage revealed to us a specific part of a template for what our response to difficulty can look like. And so this single template unfolds for us in three separate parts. And we find the first part of this template in verses 1 through 2, where our author, who by the way was King David, gives a report about a desperate situation he was in. So the context of the psalm becomes really the first part of our template. In our desperate situations. In our desperate situations do what? 
We'll get to that as we kind of continue. But we won't know how to respond to a situation unless we know what that situation is. And David tells us that situation, for him at least, in verses 1 and 2. At face value, David's desperate situation was that he had many enemies who were threatening his life and attacking his faith. It says that David had many foes rising against him. And those foes were telling David that his God had no chance of helping him. It was a physical and a spiritual attack on David. But we can fill in these gaps even more with the help of the Psalms superscript. So just above verse 1, it says this, A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So, so David wrote this psalm when he was on the run from Absalom and Absalom's army, who were attempting to take David's throne by force. And essentially, Psalm 3 was written on the backdrop of 2 Samuel 15, verses 13 through 14. Let me just quickly read those. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So, so really, David wrote this psalm of confidence and praise to the Lord in the face of death threats. But the desperate situation goes even deeper. Who was it that was after David? It wasn't an army of a far-off country. It wasn't faceless foes. David was being pursued by his own son. Being pursued by his own people. His very flesh and blood was after him. You know, the only way to, to make a desperate situation feel even more desperate is when you make it personal. David wasn't being pursued by some random army, some random force of nature. He was per- being pursued by his own people and his own son. And so we could imagine a very different psalm given David's situation. We could imagine David saying to God, Okay, Lord, I can imagine, I can wrap my head around the Philistines pursuing me, but my own son, my own people, now you must have done something wrong, you must have made a mistake, this isn't right. After all, I'm the Lord's anointed, I'm your anointed king. But as we'll see, that's not what David says. When it gets personal, is that what we say? Is that what we think? And Believe it or not, it gets even more personal as we press on. Absalom and his Israeli army wasn't just threatening David's life. They were threatening, they were taunting his faith. They were making fun of David's confidence in the Lord's deliverance. You know, someone can literally kick me while I'm down and that would hurt. But if someone was taunting and mocking my faith in the very moments that I needed it the most to carry me through, that's a different level of hurt, 
If someone were to attack my deepest convictions, the, the things that make me tick, what colors my personality, that's a way to really cause me desperation. And that's what David was experiencing. I'm guessing that no one in this room can relate to someone who's being pursued by an army to take their throne. But I am guessing that everyone in this room can relate to someone who feels desperate because their faith is being challenged. Whether that's a result of difficult times or actual attack by those who don't share your faith. I'm guessing that everyone in this room can relate to someone who feels desperate because their convictions, their beliefs, their personality, what makes them tick is being assaulted. David's desperate situation was personal, quite personal, in fact. And that's something we can relate to. That's one of the reasons why this psalm acts as such a wonderful template for us. So, so what do we do when our desperate situation looks something like David's? We look to God. And that's exactly what David does in verses 3 through 6. In our desperate situations, we can look to our faithful God. And what strikes me immediately in verse 3 is David's 180 degree turn from his desperate situation directly to the Lord. And, and, and isn't it interesting how he begins? But you, O Lord. David's first move to, was not to say, but the way you can take away my desperation, O Lord. He doesn't say, but the things you can do for me, O Lord. He says, but you, O Lord. David, David viewed the substance of his relationship with God as resting in God himself, not in what God could give to ease discomfort. Notice that he doesn't say, the way you stop suffering from entering my life is my shield. The way you ensure I never feel shame is my glory. And because you never let me feel dejected, you've become the lifter of my head. It's God who David identifies as the shield. It's God who is the glory and it's God who is the lifter of his head. God had already given these things to David in himself. David had a shield, he had glory, and he had a lifter of his head because he had God. And by the way, this was true despite his desperate situation. Despite everything around him telling him otherwise, David's feelings on the matter became subservient to the truth of the matter. The truth being that God was with him. No matter what his desperate situation was telling him, no matter what people were telling him, he did not listen to the lies of the enemy. He chose to exhibit a steady faith toward his God. In the same way, if, if we come upon a, a desperate situation and our first move is to turn to the salvation, the stuff 
that God can offer to alleviate the situation, we've missed a step. Now, certainly, uh, we should ask for deliverance. If Psalm 3 is an example for us, it tells us that. So we should do that. But our first move needs to be to turn to the one who can deliver before we turn to the deliverance itself. Because otherwise, we turn to something rather than turning to someone. And that, that, that truly is a massive perspective shift. So coming to grips with David's incredible perspective and faith, it, it naturally causes us to ask the question, why? Or how, rather? How could David possibly have this kind of confidence in the Lord despite his desperate situation? How can he say in verse 6 that he will not be afraid of many thousands of people when those thousands of people were on his coattails attempting to kill him and shipwreck his faith? It really does boil down to two things, revelation and experience. The only way that David could truly grasp God's character, the character he talks about in verse 3, is through direct revelation from God. You know, we just finished a series talking about God's attributes, talking about God's character. And do you think we could have fully understood those without his revelation, without his word? And the answer is no. So just like us, David needed revelation from God through his word, telling him what God is like. And for David, that would have primarily been Genesis through Deuteronomy. David rested on that revelation of God when going through a desperate situation, and so should we. And the second of those two is experience. Now, I've said that, that David exhibited confidence in the Lord through his situation, despite the uncertainty and despite the negative feelings he was probably experiencing in the moment. But that doesn't mean experience played no part in his confidence at all. In verses 4 and 5, David looks back at how he had experienced God's protection in the past to fuel his confidence in the present. He says, I cried and you answered. I laid down and you sustained me. And that second experience David mentions really is incredible when you think about it in the context. David is talking about the recent past in verse 5, he's referring to something that, that happened while he was on the run from Absalom and his army. So answer me, what is probably the last thing you'd want to do if you were being hunted? What is the thing that would make you the most vulnerable? Laying down and sleeping. Yet even in the most vulnerable moments, the Lord sustained David. And this experience inspired continued confidence in the Lord through his desperate situation. You know, if you're a believer in this room today, you have experienced God's faithfulness in your life to sustain you. It's not a question, it's a certainty. There are probably many of you who really honestly have no trouble looking back at important milestones of your life and saying, yes, the Lord sustained me there. 
But there might be some of you who honestly feel like you have trouble identifying those moments. And if we're all honest, my guess is that everyone in this room has been in that boat at some point in their life. Everyone has at one point or another had trouble identifying God's sustenance in their life. That doesn't mean it isn't or wasn't there. It means we're not looking in the right places. Think about it like this. Laying down to sleep and waking up again is one of the most mundane things ever. Now, how could that ever be an example of God's sustenance? Sleeping and waking up is just what happens. But that's exactly what David identifies as the Lord's sustenance. Sometimes we miss God's work because once we get through something, we tell ourselves, well, that's just how it works. That's just what happens. When I sleep, I wake up. When I get sick, I get better. When I work hard, I get rewarded. When I do A, I get B. And yes, sleeping and waking up becomes a bit more significant when you, like David, are being pursued by an army. But even so, it would have been easy for David to relegate something like that to the realm of that's just what happens because he was instead looking for some massive display of deliverance. A display like Moses at the Red Sea where God wiped out the Egyptian army in one fell swoop. But David didn't miss what we would define as small because he was looking for something we would define as big. David recognized the truth of James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. If every good thing is a gift from God, then every good thing is an example of his good sustenance in our lives. Maybe we feel like we lack experiences of God's faithful sustenance, not because it isn't there, but because we've improperly defined what it looks like. Every good thing in your life is a gift from God and evidence of his sustenance. Every good thing. It's a spirit of, of thankfulness for the good things that puts you on that road to continued confidence in our faithful God. So as David unfolds this template of what it looks like to respond in tough times, he's told us about his desperate situation. He's told us what it looks like to to turn to God. And in verses 7 and 8, he gives a cry to God for salvation. So in our desperate situations, we can look to our faithful God and confidently cry for salvation. And really, David is, is, is giving a cry for victory. He's asking God to, to make him victorious over this desperate situation. And verses 7 and 8 are, are this strange combination of plea and certainty. He cries for God to save him. In the first half of verse 7, but then in the second half of verse 7, on into verse 8, he speaks as if that salvation had already happened. 
Really, by asking the Lord to arise and save him, David is asking the Lord to strike his enemies. But then he says that the Lord has already stricken his enemies. He says that victory and salvation already belongs to the Lord, even though he's still in the very midst of that plea for salvation and victory. You know, there's things they, they don't seem to mesh. And what, what I think David is doing is he's helping us refine our understanding of victory. Let's start by, by bringing verses 7 to 8 back to bear on us. As I said earlier, there are probably not many here who can relate to needing saved from an army. But all of us can relate to needing saved from attacks on our core beliefs, on our faith, on our personal dignity, on our honor in the Lord, uh, from false accusations, from malignment, and the list goes on. And remember, as we saw from verse 2, these are the things that David was also asking for victory over. So when we read, strike the cheeks of my enemies and break their teeth, we probably immediately think that, that, God, or that David is asking God to physically destroy his enemies. And there's a measure of this. David is asking the Lord to save him from the physical threat of Absalom and his army. But there's a, there's a stream of meaning underneath this request that I think hits much closer to home. Especially true in the historical cultural context of David, to publicly strike the cheek of someone was to utterly shame them. It was to, to, to disgrace them in the face of onlookers. So David asking God to strike his enemies on the cheek was a request that he would shame them. Now, it wasn't a request that he would make them feel worthless. But it was a request for God to prove himself when others accused him of being false. It was a request for God to shame them by showing himself as victorious savior when David's enemies were saying that he was a powerless fraud. And for David to ask God to break the teeth of the wicked was a request to disarm them of their power, to take away their bite. Just like breaking the teeth of a lion would be disarming its power, breaking the teeth of the wicked is the same. It's a request that God would disarm the lies and false accusations of God's enemies, or of David's enemies. David was requesting that the Lord would continue to instill confidence in his character and in his victory, despite David's enemies saying that the Lord was a disgraceful phony. David was asking God to help him put away the lies of his enemies and to focus on God. And David speaks as if that had already happened. He speaks as if God had already given him victory over his enemies. Why? Because David knew, despite his feelings on the matter, despite times when it felt like his enemies were winning, despite when he felt like he had so much shame that he would never recover, despite his feelings of malignment, he had the Lord. And that was a sure thing. And that meant victory and salvation in and of itself. But you, O oh Lord, 
These last few verses are about how the Lord and his ultimate plans cannot be thwarted. And there is intense comfort in that reality. So back to our question, how does David help us refine our understanding of victory in desperate situations? By reminding us that we already have victory in the Lord. We already have it. Romans 8, 31 through 37 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I really feel like we've been referencing that passage every other week here. But I think it's just a testament to its life-giving truth. We fight from victory to victory. Christ has come to take our sin, to take our punishment, so that through God's grace and through faith in him, we can experience that same victory that Christ did when he rose from the grave. Christ is our victory. And if we repent and believe in him, we have victory because we have Christ. But how do we experience that victory in the here and now? And I think here is our big application. How do we experience that? The good thing about fighting from victory to victory is that whenever we act according to that victory, we're experiencing it, even if we don't feel like we are. Whenever we act in faith toward God because we know that Christ has already won, even when everything is telling us not to, we experience that victory. And it's not even about a faith that just overcomes hardship. It's about a faith that turns to God in hardship. Our faith isn't primarily displayed in our ability to get through desperate situations with ease. It's displayed in our resolve to turn to the Lord even in the midst of those desperate situations. To say, but you, O Lord. In eternity, we will experience ultimate victory over our enemies and over uh, the lies of the devil. It's a certainty. So our experience of victory in Christ is in the faithful steps that we take toward that ultimate victory. So for all of us who will inevitably find ourselves in a desperate situation. Times when we feel dejected, we feel like our faith is in shambles, we feel maligned, we feel shameful. Look to the Lord in faith. That's enough. Turn to the Lord 
who is your victory. Not ease of situation. And by the way, I'm, I'm confident that there are people in this room right now who are in desperate situations. So let me encourage you. You are displaying a faithful step as we speak to come into the Lord's house to worship Him in the midst of difficulty is a testament to your faith. And it shouldn't just encourage you, it should encourage those around you as well. Because they see you show up knowing what you're going through. So our faithful steps don't just encourage ourselves toward continued faithfulness, they encourage our fellow brothers and sisters toward continued faithfulness as well. And for those of you who are having an extremely tough time getting through, who feel like your faith, it's hanging by a thread, pursue relationships with those in this community. Those who can encourage you in your faith. When you're having a hard time remembering how God has been faithful to you, let others remember for you. Let others tell you of how God has been faithful to them so that God's faithfulness can be made real to you once more. Immerse yourself in community because in community is encouragement toward faith. In community is where you come face to face with God's overwhelming faithfulness that cultivates our overcoming faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, what a, what a wonderful way to start 2024 in the Psalms. Lord, as I was preparing, even I was amazed at the depths of Psalm 3, at how much you've given us here to encourage us in desperate situations. Lord, I pray that these words would fall on our hearts and our minds so that as we look to your faithfulness, we are encouraged toward overcoming faith. Because we know that you are the victory, not ease of situation, not anything else but you, Lord. Lord, we love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.